Welcome to the Will Squared Recorded Sit-Down Sessions. Two wills, one message, live a good life. We discuss things fortnightly, listen if you want. Big willies. Will, I've made a terrible mistake. I have gotten accepted into an American college and I have not got a scholarship to pay for it. <laughs> You're done. You've topped yourself. You've buried yourself in a few hundred K debt. I'm screwed. Game over, Will. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we are talking about today. The economic difficulties of millennials with a particular starting note on student debt. Now, the contrast across the world is very different. If you're in Northern Europe, you don't have to pay any debt. You only have to pay 66 cents out of every dollar you earn. So, that's, that breaks fairly even, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure it does. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, gosh. In Australia, it's a bit of a different story, similar to Canada's system, where half of it's subsidized by the government and half you pay your own way and that debt you do pay your own way if you can't afford it you end up deferring to a program called HEX which is effectively a student loan program operated by the federal government that in a long-winded way just hangs on to your debt and you pay for it through your taxes once you start work. The United States of America the land of opportunity, the land of freedom, the land of democracy, and a whole bunch of other things that are fairly contradictory does not practice this <laughs> behaviour. <laughs> Given that you're going to be the one trapped over there paying these loans, do you want to describe to us what you have to do? How expensive are we talking here? We're talking like a Mercedes-Benz sports car every year. Wow. But in saying that, that's the flat, that's the flat rate, no scholarships, Yeah. nothing. So the, the position you're in now. The position that I'm in now, which is why I'm finding channels to get money. And there are multiple. It's just a matter of where you look. There's on-campus jobs that you can work during the year. There are merit scholarships, which I'm also in the draw to to potentially get. And there's also study grants in Australia for Australian citizens that want to go there. There's a variety of charitable institutions that give grants to people. It's just a matter of who you know and where to look. It's a good plan. And I'm glad you mentioned those channels. However, as I'm sure you'll encounter on campus... People get bogged down in the monotony of studies and they don't look at their channels or their options. And I also would like to make a distinction. Not all American universities cost that much. A vast majority of technical schools and community colleges are for free. <laughs> Whether or not that education is on par with these good universities is another story. So basically in America, you've got multiple channels. However, I overheard and overanalyzed perhaps as you're mentioning those channels, they're limited in quantity. So when we talk about scholarships and financing options, how many students can get those? For the transfer merit, which is my position because yep. I'm a transfer student, it's 40. 40. 40 people and the amount's like $13,000 US. Because the most expensive thing is tuition. Mm. Room and board doesn't actually cost much more than what it would cost you to rent a place here. And it's on campus, like you don't live far away. You're in Los Angeles in the middle of the city. But it's mainly tuition that costs the most. So that's that's ideally what I'm going to be looking to decrease. 
because everything else is is pretty standard books and supplies. Everything else is pretty much under a grand or around a thousand dollars. But like tuition, something crazy like fifty five thousand dollars just for tuition. Yeah, it seems copious, and it's interesting because in the last twenty years, whether or not the debate on if quality is increasing is, is another debate. But the fact is, uh, university costs and the cost of higher education has been increasing four times inflation over the last twenty years, meaning that a degree in the 1990s is now four times more expensive. Has the quality of that degree increased by four times? Questionable. Not out of the question, but it would be difficult to do. The volume of positions has expanded dramatically. About six times more people go to university than in the 1990s and in the previous generation. Having said that, the number of placements available have also increased. So it's not a supply and demand problem. That excessive tuition cost is almost unjustifiable. It's not a good idea to have a mortgage before you even start making money. <laughs> I mean, that's not ideal. That, that's right. But and I, I think that's what would be tragic would be if you had the money, but no offer of admission. That's like building a manufacturing facility and not having any customers that want to buy what you produce. You're better off to have customers at your door saying, hey, we really like what you've got and you having to go out and, and produce it. I remember, I think it was Thomas Edison did this where yeah, he yeah. would go to the press and announce an invention that he hadn't made yet just to force him onto death ground to give him the necessity to go and create that invention because he, he said it to the press. <laughs> well, or get Tesla to do it for or, him. <laughs> whatever, but it's that he gave himself the necessity to create and to yeah. go out and do that. And I think that's a, that's the similar thing that people have to do. And, you know, don't look at it as a tragic thing. Like, it's you're in a better position now that you've got admission. You might not necessarily have the money yet, but it's better than having all the money in the world and no offer. That's probably worse. Why it's so important to ensure that you place yourself well before you end up having that debt in the first place. So when you're at university, you should be thinking about that, thinking that when I leave here, I'm going to have a $30,000 bounty. On my, on my head that I need to pay off and how am I going to do it? And so if you approach it like that, like you're saying, it's it's expensive and it shouldn't be that expensive. And I think that's partly to do with the fact also the university reputation, right? It's a brand. It's the same reason why iPhones are like $2,000 and people still buy them yes. because it's an iPhone. <laughs> same with any sort of Amer famous American university or Ivy League college. It's the reputation that you're paying for. I'm doing engineering. Maths and physics are universal. You know, like the degree I'm getting here is not going to be any marginally different than the degree I'm getting there, except it's nice wallpaper. You know, it's nice to have the name behind you. <laughs> But it's 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 those opportunities that will present themselves, which is predominantly the reason why I'm actually going to America. It's not for the education itself. It's more for the networks that are going to be present and the opportunities that are going to be present. That is entirely up to me to go and pursue. I'm not going to expect anyone to tell me who to go to see. I, I'm good at doing it. I'm good at rocking up and just saying, hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. It's pretty good. And that's what I plan on doing. So that's kind of how I'm justifying the cost. You could have $30,000, but if you met someone at your time at university, like it could be something as random like you, you met a girl whose dad is super rich or runs a hedge fund or you know is working in a business that you want to work in. And that $30,000 is totally justified because it's like the money that you will end up making, you'll, you'll pay your loan back. No time. A hundred percent. And I'm glad you mentioned those intangible opportunities that you often dismiss as not being directly related to your degree. I just mentioned all those costs related because that's often, that that's a big burden for a lot of people and it's often blamed as to why the millennial generation have reduced their consumption habits, why they're not employed as frequently. And the stark contrast is, is a completely different situation in Germany. German job growth is strong. The job retention is strong. Your outcomes are a lot better and brighter and obviously in an ignorant way of looking at it they say
say because you don't have student debt. Yeah, that's that's not that's not the reason why. There's always a third variable. Yeah. There. I suspect you're correct. Obviously, student debt is a bad thing if you have no intention of utilizing those opportunities, as you said, and no intention of looking at other avenues of paying back the debt. But if you ignore those two things, you sort of bring that punishment on yourself. Yes. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately. It's like a mortgage, right? It's the same thing. Like, you're going to have to go through life doing that. People take on, you know, millions of dollars of debt to run businesses and go broke and run into millions of dollars of debt or are in debt for a long time before they start making money. The same thing. It just depends on how you react to the situation. Are you going to leverage that debt and use it to motivate you? Yeah, that's pretty much how you got to look at it as opposed to saying, oh, poor me, which is what millennials are kind of good at doing at, is, you know, <laughs> blaming everyone except them. Yes, it's so true. So I guess we've covered that one. It's, it's bad. It can damage you, but there are opportunities that you're not factoring in and there are other ways of getting around it. So there are always channels. Trust me. I call it the... Alumni courtyard metaphor. <laughs> Just quickly, I'll tell you. Yeah, so, I like it. So they serve free food on Thursdays in the courtyard. And on this particular day, they were serving hot dogs or something. 300 people in the line, close to, at least. The guy that I was with knew the person serving the food at the front of the line. And we skipped 300 <laughs> people and we got food. I said to him, you could have been the top student here, top grades, best in the class it still wouldn't have gotten you to the front of the line. The fact that you knew that guy was the reason why we got the food. And that's life. It's who you know. So finding the money, it's it's a matter of knowing where to look and knowing who to talk to and just putting yourself out there because a lot of people just don't do that. A lot of people get bogged down on the website, looking at what the website suggests to do instead of actually just going out there in anything. And like I said, I'm, I'm good at going out there and doing it and just putting myself in front of people because... That's the only way you can do things. There's, especially in large organizations, you can't email, you can't call <laughs> in because you just you get deferred, you get you get pushed off onto someone else. But if you're there, it's very hard to say no to someone who's shown up, who's there. One thing we can't avoid though is that the economic situation that graduates are entering is no longer as hospitable as it once was. No. And I'll briefly describe a few of the reasons why. So basically, it began in the 80s, this concept called neoliberalism, which is essentially after the 70s and the union actions and all of these basically production slowing events that put too much power in the hands of the employee, people and governments put in market-friendly politicians, be it Thatcher or Reagan, and they brought about this new economic system that was pro-globalization, pro-trade, pro shareholders and ultimately led to the casualization of the workforce, led to project-based employment and, and took away those long-term jobs that once existed. This was not so bad until the 2008 financial crash that of course happened mainly in the housing market and basically resulted in pretty much anyone who was a graduate at that point losing all potential opportunities. So let's just put out there, you've got rid of your student debt, you've, you've crossed all these hurdles, you've managed to get some good opportunities and then you enter a job market that has just collapsed collapse so so hard that every recession before the great depression looks tiny surely that then is is a problem for millennials and well that's the thing it's like the dog who's caught the car it's like you've solved your debt problem but you're still gonna have to chase money so that's the way i see it. it's like well <laughs> you may as well have debt because you're going to be chasing money your entire life anyway yeah i mean obviously we have to chase money to survive that makes sense and if we weren't chasing money we would just be chasing sustenance whatever it is and i say chasing money i mean learning how to look for money and learning how to position yourself to get paid. Because you're going to have to do it anyway, like you just said, in the labor force. 
Yeah. You, you're competing against everyone else. You're competing against millions of other people who are probably more qualified than you. So what's the difference? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a hard pill to swallow though. And uh, the reason it's a hard pill to swallow is because no generation before us has had to do so. This is the first generation where you could be competing for a programming job against an equally educated Indian programmer that's getting paid one-tenth you are. And that's what neoliberalism allowed. You could argue that it's pulled billions out of poverty. That's good. But it's also jeopardized the future of our millennial generation within the West. Not to mention AI. I mean, you're going to start competing against that pretty soon too. So. And any any form of automo- automation. And look, it sounds sad, and I know I'm playing like the full socialist angle here, uh, but for most people, seeing the world that we the way we see it, where it's full of opportunities, you just need to know the right people, build the right relationships, and go out and do something, isn't an option for a lot of people due to whatever reason, insecurities, disabilities, etc. And yeah, they've been woken up to a situation where the world appears pretty bad for them. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I'm empathetic with people. Because it is tough to swallow that pill. Communism, it's great. Like, it's the ideal society, but it just doesn't work. No. I think it's also worth pointing out that neoliberalism is here to stay. Because the previous the previous system that we had with lots of unionization was terribly damaging to society. It was almost like the Workers' Party in North Korea. You only got fed if you were part of the right Workers' Party, the right union. The economy was getting so slowed down that basic products like oil weren't getting delivered to country towns <laughs> because workers were on strike. That's that's not good. Maybe we've pushed the marketization too far and particularly the casualization of the workforce where there's lots of underemployment, there's lots of part-time employment, there's no full-time secure jobs available, particularly for graduates. It's worth pointing out that STEM graduates are the exception in this case. Lots of opportunities for them. University only makes sense, in my opinion, if you're doing it for STEM. Yeah. Like to justify the price tag, I'm, I'm doing mechanical engineering. If I was doing anything else, I would stay here. Mm. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, and uh, and we obviously cover that in our university podcast, and yeah. and industry tends to agree. There was a survey done in the United States by Pew, I think, in 2012, that basically said firms and industry think that the graduates of our generation, only 38% of them, have the skills that it takes to enter the workforce. They interviewed the university students and the universities themselves, who said that 90% of their students have the skills. So there's a bit of a discrepancy between what the universities think and what the reality is. A very, very big discrepancy. And then basically when that gap where the remaining 62% only get underemployed because they don't have the right skills that industry needs, then people just blame the neoliberalism pro-market policies that have caused that. They find the easy way out instead of saying, oh, well, I probably should have gone out and pursued those skills. And I mean, what do we mean? What do you mean by the skills? Like what were the sort of skills that they were referring to? The specific skills they were referring to almost collectively existed with people with IQs above 125, which again, knocks out 60% of your population. But they are directly related to AI development, programming, scientific research, and business skills. So like having interpersonal skills. Interpersonal business acumen was critical. In fact, they said that industries, particularly in the Silicon Valley, were looking at synergies between having technical skills and interpersonal skills as a keen employee target. Q double degree. <laughs> that, that's right. So it comes in. That's where it comes in. Whether or not that's been communicated to the universities, I'm not sure. But one thing is certain the universities aren't doing it. They don't have to though. Like I said, they're, they're profitable. They're profitable. They don't, they don't have to do anything. That's why it's kind of, it's a tough situation. But you've got to realize that the universities are a business and they're doing fine. They, they don't have to change. Uh, you, don't, you don't like it? Too bad. 
they've got a hundred other people that want to go that want to pay so it's tough it is tough and look assuming you've gotten past your student debt woes uh you're still gonna have to face the bigger woes of the labor market yeah imagine that i mean imagine paying off your debt and going into the labor market and then telling you your degree doesn't mean shit. <laughs> it's completely redundant. We don't need you. It's frightening. And it will be very damaging in the future, I think, if you've only got about 40% of the labor market actually genuinely useful. There was a discussion about IQ, actually, in relation to automation of the future. And already, 10% of the human population is redundant, whether they like it or not. This is coming from what Jordan Peterson has, has said many times in his lectures. If you've got an IQ below 83, you're not useful to society. It sounds terrible but that data is presented by the defense force the defense force can pretty much employ anyone and if they can't employ someone with an iq less than 83 who cannot comprehend basic tasks imagine what it's going to be like when ai do all of our administration when ai do all of our manufacturing Mm. when they do all of our accounting all of our legal work and most of our basic engineering not to mention we can comprehend what iq 150 is we can understand that sort of person and their how their mind conceptualizes things but something with an iq of like 6584 what does that look like that's the potential of ai it's just it's it's crazy and i think the like i was saying the only thing that we can compete on that level is our ability to answer the big questions like the question of our existence the questions of why why are we doing this because computers are great at doing the what the the how they're good at doing the how right Very good much at, so. yeah, yeah. But they're not good at asking, oh, well, why are we doing this? Or they don't, they're not good at suggesting new ways of doing things, right? Mm. It's pretty much very static. They can't think laterally. Mm. I think where we're going to be competitive, because uh, that's essentially, that's who we're competing against now. We're not even competing against each other anymore. We're literally competing against technology uh, yeah. to become more than a tool, to become a master. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up, Will, because that's key. Everyone gets stuck talking about student debt. Everyone gets stuck talking about the labor markets in China, India competing against us and, and neoliberalism allowing that to happen. But in reality... They're just bullshit conflicts yeah. to avoid the real conflicts. That's right. They'd be... Ten, all of that together would be about 10% of the problem. The artificial intelligence industry worldwide is growing by 170% per annum. It's going to be worth $4 trillion in 2020. It's effed. Four percent of the world's money, $4 out of every 100 will be put through a computer. It's nuts. Like... That's what we're competing against. <laughs> if you're confused about that, stop your degree and do something useful. Yeah. So all these problems mounting up lead to another big problem. And that is the consumption habits of millennials are dramatically changing compared to previous generations. The last six generations have all had probably more the same goal and that is home ownership or the ownership of some semblance of wealth since the end of feudalism and assets as well. So cars, for instance, let's talk about cars. So first of all, <laughs> Particularly in Australia, car ownership is, in our younger generation, down 38%. Now, that doesn't seem that big of a deal. It's like, oh, a third less people are buying cars right now. But let's look at it closer. Of the remaining people that are buying cars, more than 90% of them are second-hand cars. Mm. That means virtually no young person today is buying a brand new car. Is that just because of the alternatives? Has technology itself changed that product in elasticity? The fact that you mm. had to buy a car back then, like the reason, maybe the reason why so many people had a car back then was because there were no other options. And now that we've got ele- electricity, electric trains, public transport, Uber, it's so much easier to get places. 
Is that why people aren't buying as many cars or don't see the need in? Well, that's a that's a big reason. It's funny though. Investment in public transport in the 1920s was far greater than any other time in, in history, right? So the Model T was a competitor in the market, but let's be serious. It was trains, electric trams. It was all these innovations that have been around for a long time. Mass, mass transport as mass opposed to individual transport. Yeah. was key. Uh, I think what's changed is two things. First of all, more people live in cities than they do today. 93% of Australians live in a city. I think it's 85% in America. And particularly in India and China, it's it's rapidly changing. It's becoming quite dangerous to the world, that many people moving into cities. Everywhere's becoming a city now. I mean, the more we expand and expand and expand, yeah, the and more cities are going to become <laughs> megapolises. That's right. Above 10 million people. So when that happens, when you get that population density, cars no longer become feasible. Previously, when you had half your population in the country having to travel long distances, it was essential to have a car. You couldn't run a bus service for one person to get from village A to village B. Mm. It didn't make sense. But now when you have hundreds of thousands of people trying to get from station A to station B, or in some cases, millions of people just trying to cram into the central business district, mass transport is key. But I think there's another, there's another mindful thing churning over in the minds of millennials, and that's the environment. Millennials are making a lot of consumer choices that are directly related to their moral compass. In previous generations that either didn't have that information or had greater necessities that outstripped the need to protect the environment, um, particularly in the United States where there was a lot of environmental crises between the 50s and 80s, yeah. um, particularly in the Midwest to do with the Mississippi Ripper. Everyone understood it was bad. There was very little care because the earth was this endless... Organ- and there wasn't as much information either. Readily accessible. I mean, now that you've got the media, now that you've got technology screaming at you, you know, we're fucking up the environment. It's funny. It's like we're the ones fucking up the environment because we we are now the generation that, you know, has got all the technology when it's kind of like, ah, it's been a joint effort, I think. <laughs> For the last 250 years, yeah. guys. Because we've got more access to this technology, we're the ones that are more conscious of that. And it's that consciousness that is changing consumer habits. So we're buying secondhand cars. We're trying to recycle things. We're not driving as much as we used to because we do know that 25% of the world's greenhouse gas impacts are caused directly from petroleum in cars. So we're not using cars as frequently. Of course, another thing that is more interesting, I'd say more damaging because this whole concept about changing consumer habits is the change in the net wealth of millennials. The net wealth of millennials is in sharp decline. Whether it's because of the casualization of the workforce or the fact that you've got a lot of debt before you start earning money may be out of the picture. What we do know is that people are buying fewer objects and objects that retain value. Houses are key. So yeah, it makes sense to not buy a car if you have alternatives like Uber and public transport and it might be damaging the environment and you want to recycle old cars. But what doesn't really make much sense is not investing your money in housing. But even housing is declining too. It's not growing as fast as it was. Yes. And that is when like, that is when our previous generations, in particular baby boomers who were the big, big house owners of all of human history really, mm. who successfully own multiple houses in some cases, can't understand why we're not purchasing homes. It's the same same reason, but it's the same kind of concept of Uber. I mean, now you've got Airbnb. It's, you know, you can rent your house out to people. Yeah. And like I said, this this actually goes back to what we're talking about impulsivity. It's like, why save up for a house when I can just pay a little bit now and get it now? Yeah. It's 100% renting in the millennial conscience is far more acceptable. And there's even more because in our parents' generation, the number of people who believed in entrepreneurship was about 9%. 
in our generation is 50%. One in two millennials want to start a business. Yeah, uh, that's a key. That want to though. Like there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of wanting. There's a lot of wanting, but that, that shows you something. Yeah. They want, they would, one in two millennials would rather start a business than own a home. So renting is really quite an attractive option. Another thing, as you just mentioned with, with ride sharing and intermediarity is that people want communal habitats now. A lot of young people want to live like they do in dorms from their university days and translate into the housing market that way. We want to live in small tribal communities within our cities, which means the previous concept of vast, sprawling, LA-style suburbia doesn't fit with that. It doesn't... Living as an individual... In the a Machiavellian, ma- every man for himself yeah. ideal. Yeah. It's, it's because also the millennial generation... As, as well as being exposed to all that information, have become far more accepting of one another, far more tolerant of other people. Mm. There's a far more neighborly sense amongst young people. And that's translating into their community, in their into their consumption habits. And it's also translating into social habits as well. So a big reason why we bought houses and bought cars was to raise families. Millennials aren't raising families as large as they once did and much later in life. The average age of a millennial having a child is now 29. Our parents' generation, it was 21. Yeah, and that have like, you know, eight kids in the 1800s. <laughs> eight children. Now it's at 1.9 below replacement yeah. rate. Well, I mean, like we're saying, we're talking about believers, yeah, inclusivity. Now that women have got more freedom, they're not settling down and having 10 kids when they're 20 and then dying when they're 40 because yes. they've literally, that's all they've been doing their entire life is pumping out babies. <laughs> Tragically, uh, yeah. So that's why that's, you know, a contributing factor. It uh, is very much so. Our increasing level of freedom is 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 what's impacting that. But like you said, like why why waste why waste the time in saving up for anything if you can just do it now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's no social pressure there either that no. would that had previously influenced people. There's in fact even calls now from many leading social scientists and psychologists that suggest that adolescence should be redefined to the age of twenty five. Yeah. That and it's called the pre adulthood bloom. And it's where you discover yourself right. in your early 20s. You become an individual. You become an individual. And in previous generations, that was when you had your first set of children. You were definitely married. You probably owned a house and you definitely owned cars. Yeah. But now that's changed. What The meaning of like what it is to be an individual has changed. That kind of, let's call it the initiation ritual. Exactly. You know, of having a baby or whatever. That has changed now. It can mean different things. Very different things. A lot of it has translated into getting a university degree. Yeah. A lot of it has translated into being part of a uh, group collective. A union or something. A union. Yeah. Within, something with an ism at the end. So, all those key changes have resulted in a m- massive decline in, in general wealth retention of young people. If you don't own assets, fixed assets that accumulate wealth, mm. you don't have much wealth. <laughs> it's funny. Because it's like, I think we're the one of the first generations to kind of really stop and ask why. Mm. Like, the, we're the ones that like think the most about what we're doing. For sure. I know we've talked a lot about people being blind to things, but I legitimately think that's the problem is that we're so, we're so good at asking questions and we're so good at asking why, but we're in a world that doesn't allow much room for that. You know, it's a set structure. The wealth system is a set structure. We don't want to conform to that. And it's like, well, what do you think is going to happen if you don't want to conform against something that's set and static and it's not changing and you won't be able to change it for a long time unless we have some sort of massive apocalypse or something, which, (laughs) you know, is a potential with AI. I just think that millennials have got a mindset that's just not applicable to the current society that we live in. Yes. And previously, the current society that we live in rewards conformity with, with generally wealth accruement. If you conform with the rules, the banks will help you out. 
you'll get a good credit rating, you'll get a good home, which you can keep improving on, etc. But at the same time, it's like they want you to be, it's like <laughs> what you want an employee to be. <laughs> yeah. You want them to conform to the rules, you want them to be reason, you know, agreeable, but at the same time, you want them to be an individual enough that they have some sort of motivation towards their work, but not so much so that they realize that they're too good for the organization and leave. <laughs> It's the same thing. It's like, well, you want me to be independent, but you want me to conform. It's like, what do you want <laughs> from me? You get mixed messages. Yeah. Uh, that's for sure. And the people that are giving out those messages draws us to our, our final point. And this isn't directly related to the millennials. This is related to everyone that will depend on us. So those people that are making the rules, you could safely say are baby boomers. People generally in their 50s, 60s on the cusp of retirement and soon to be our parents as well. What is the world going to be like for them when we start taking over the majority of voters, when we start taking over the majority of major wage earners? What will the world look like when we say, oh, we don't want to buy your houses or we don't want to drive your cars. We don't want to vote for those, you know, retirement benefits. We we want hospitals and schools. <laughs> yeah, it's going to... I honestly think history will repeat itself. I honestly yeah. think we're going to transform into our own version of the baby boomers. Oh, how and so? What are we going to do? Pro-market, pro-short-termism? No, just what, like, we'll take what is happening now yeah. and that'll become the norm. And then there'll be a generation after us, which is even more radical. <laughs> yeah, Next level. I agree. It's for thousands of years. It's happened that way. Elders have been bagging out young people for not being like them. Yeah. Uh, that's just how it is. We uh, Whether it's jealousy or envy, I'm not sure. Well, it's like the paperback book. When the paperback book came out, everyone was saying, oh, you know, everyone's going to be so distracted. Yeah. They said the same thing about the iPhone. It's like people have been arguing about the same shit for thousands of years. <laughs> that's right. And like there's lots of... Socrates writes a lot about how frustrated he got in his later years with the young with the young school kids. They're just like, I can't teach these people because, <laughs> you know, they're too... They chat too they're much. Too crazy. Yeah. They're too crazy. So we've been doing it for a long time. It's, yeah. It is likely that if we continue our path, then our children's children will be far more radical than us. Exactly. Like what we're doing now will just become a norm. They'll be like, gosh, you're so concerned. Conservative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so, it, it is interesting. In terms of economics, it's going to be a very bumpy ride for us. And the bumpy ride is specifically, uh, we won't have much wealth and savings to land on, be it because student debt took care of that, be it because we didn't invest in fixed assets, or the fact that the casualization of the workforce plus the financial crash in the housing market are going to keep people spooked for a long time. Our changing social habits on marriage and parenthood are going to keep us very wealthy within our mid to late 30s, but in in our 40s, we'll probably only be having one child per couple, which is going to be very damaging. You're in the, saying in, in t when we're 40? When we're 40. So that's what, what when, year is that? That's in the late 2030s. 2030s. Yeah, people uh, will just be having one child. Yeah, and that's going to be really damaging because, well, I'll put it to you this way. In 1910, the United States had 32 workers for every retiree. Damn. By the time we start having children... It'll be two to one. Jesus. Two taxpayers for every dependent. I think we need a cull. <laughs> and the, the cull sounds easy, but it gets more complicated than yeah. that. The key areas of tax revenue for states in Australia and in the United States come from petrol taxes, car-related taxes, and housing taxes. Mm. We're not buying many houses. We certainly don't like cars. The major tax revenue for governments is disappearing. Because of deregulated work hours, there's not as much income tax. So where we used to get all our money is now now drying up and the amount of money we need to give to retirees and dependents is going up. Do you think that 
the modern modern capitalism, the economic structure that we have employed now, do you think that'll change? I mean, like universal income, do you think that'll ever be a possibility in the future? Yeah, definitely. And the, the reason I think that is because macroeconomic cycles on massive levels generally shake up every 300 years, similar to democratic cycle. Fundamentally, our present economic system was based off Adam Smith's thesis in the mid-1700s. Yeah. We are on the cusp of a big shaker, and it's going to come in the variety of a change to retirement so retirement, I predict, won't exist. They'll raise the age of retirement to above the average life expectancy as a start. Mm. There won't be retiree benefits, but there'll be activities to keep you within the community and employed in some degree in the long term. Because retirement just means or implies that you just you're not working anymore. That's right. right? You 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 physically are incapable of working any longer, and society effectively pays you back for your long life, your life's effort of yeah. work. But now employment is far more mental than it is physical. Mm. So I mean that retirement might not even be a concept no. uh, in the future with technology and that sort of stuff. It won't. In regards to the universal basic income or something along those lines that helps keep income inequality down, that will become essential for governments in the future as automation gets deployed. So like when 50% of the labor market gets eliminated by robots, you still have to keep them fed somehow. Otherwise, you've got potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dissidents that are ready to overthrow you. <laughs> <laughs> so now that'll be the second issue, keeping the robots happy. Keeping the robots happy keeping the people happy and keeping everyone content with a purpose in life that's probably the most hardest thing to do <laughs> it is the hardest thing to do and it ties back directly to the economics of our of our generation mm. in all previous generations your purpose in life was to become wealthy your goal in life was to have money we tied everything that was good and moral and healthy to wealth the richest people in society weren't judged they were admired in china you're judged by the amount of your bank account not your character it's a really redefinition of what we want in life what do we want now what do we want and it's we don't know that's the whole problem we don't know what we want it's very stressful to go through life not knowing what you want not having a purpose because it's like there's so many options before you so i'm saying like the dog that's caught the car essentially we've got what we wanted you know we got beanbags and free food yeah but we're still not happy (laughs) why Because we don't know what the fuck we want. Yeah, that's not only going to be a defining characteristic of our generation in terms of having to grapple with the biggest existential threats of our time, be it AI, be it environment, be it potential dangers in space. It's also redefining the economic model to comply with this new social and philosophical change. And that is going to be indelible on the course of human history. I would suggest, I'm just putting this one out there. Mm. If you have a look at the economic model of Star Trek's Federation, right? I expect if our generation continues the course it's going on and our children's children children the next four generations continue going on the same course we will see a form of utilitarian capitalism that benefits everyone and there's no such thing as money essentially in the future i think if we expand throughout the galaxy to a certain point then yeah my money won't becomes it becomes redundant because the per capita wealth of each individual will not be measured in material substance well that's the thing and economics is the study of or the management of scarce resources for unlimited needs when we go to space nothing is scarce (laughs) Like there's, what is it? There's like a comet on like, and they reckon it's got, it's like a comet that's made out of like platinum and gold. Yes. The asteroid belt alone has more minerals than earth by factors of thousands. Yeah. So like when we get to a point where we can extract that to an efficient level, we won't need money because 
we will have everything. That's but, right. And that'll be another issue because it's like once we've got everything, what do we do? What do we do? Oh man, it never ends. <laughs> it, it doesn't end. It's the human condition. That's I think that's that that is the tragedy of the human condition is that we are life that is aware of itself and that brings consequences. Right. I think the story of Eden, Adam and Eve, hmm. is a great example or a great metaphor for us becoming aware of itself. You know, before Adam ate, was it Adam or Eve who ate from the the tree of knowledge? Eve started first. Okay. You know, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, of awareness, of consciousness, of good and evil, because that's the whole thing. We're aware of the good and evil that's in us. They got cast out of paradise because being ignorant, that's why they say ignorance is bliss. (laughs) It's like, it is bliss. It's paradise. That's what it represents. The fact that we didn't know anything better. We didn't know any better. We just, we were animals. And then when we got the knowledge of ourselves and the consciousness, that's Mm. when we were cast out of paradise and cast down to earth, let's say, from heaven. And that's, I think, we're going to have to continually have to deal with that fact is that the more freedom that we get given, the more options laid before us, the more we're going to have to find ways of overcoming that anxiety that analysis paralysis mm. of the options that we could go down, the, the, the paths that we can go down. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Yeah, it is interesting. Like everything we've just discussed, we started with the idea of economics. But in reality, what we found is because this generation, our generation, is the first generation to be intimately aware of the human condition that yeah. is constantly asking questions and will have to grapple with competing with vastly superior processing machines. Economic, politics, social change uh, are all going to be intertwined together. Yeah, I think we've just hit a wall in terms of thought. Like we can't go any further physics breaks down before like the big bang i can't explain what happened before the big bang in terms of human thinking we've we've hit a wall we have hit a wall and it's because we've stopped doing things we've stopped actually doing shit just being active yes and once we start being active maybe we can answer those questions if we just get off this rock maybe we can solve those problems if we just get involved Maybe the economics problem isn't that bad if we just maybe learn more about it and stop being ignorant to the financial system. Because the universe itself, it transcends words, it transcends thoughts. Easily. Like Socrates said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. He was right because thoughts, philosophical thought, it actually, once you look deep enough, it actually contradicts itself. Oh, yeah. It's an infinite loop. It enters into an infinite loop that you can't actually reach a conclusion. And that's, but that's where action comes in because yes. action transcends words. It transcends thoughts. And that's the only proper way that we can deal with this kind of existential problem that's now more evident than ever before. Mm. The only way we can deal with that is through active things as opposed to passive things. Yeah. And that's why it's so important that we love because that's the entire premise of the book is that we love from the essence of our being because that's the only way we can combat our anxiety because everything else is just like a passive effect of that. Like envy, jealousy, every single human concept that we've ever come up with, politics, Mm. economics, philosophy, maths. They are just concepts to deal with our existential anxiety about the universe. You can boil it down to that. You can. And the difference between being stuck on that concept, almost approaching nihilism once you start accepting everything is all one thing and every and that one thing is almost nothing, is, is action. I think the final thing we should end on is the fact that if you want wealth in your life as a millennial, you just need to take action. You just need to, you know, find those opportunities at university that you might not have found. Find other avenues for financing your debt. Find a job, a degree that will pitch you against AI and you'll win. You know, if you don't want a house, find alternatives. There are alternatives. If you basically want the life that you want, just take action. Stop stop thinking about it. 
This one goes out to all the big women.